Thank you, brother. Thank you. And for those that lead with you this morning, I just am grateful for you all that lead us in musical worship and the opportunity that we have to prepare our hearts for the reading and studying in God's Word. As I've already said, I'm grateful that you are here this morning. I hope when you come in that you have a Bible, something that you can open up preferably or even turn on, and that you will join me in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. If you come in and uh, you do not have a Bible or you forgot your Bible, there's always Bibles, and they're over here in the back on a rack. If you come in, you're always welcome to avail yourself of one of those, or if you have it, um, in some other form. But Exodus chapter 1, and I would love for you to be there. We're going to read the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 1, and then after we do so, I want to also encourage you to keep your Bible open, because we're going to be going back to these seven verses multiple times during our time together in the Word. If you came in, you got one of those bulletins. On the back of that, there'll be some notes if you want to avail yourselves of those as we study through God's Word this morning. So Exodus chapter 1, if you will follow along in your copy as I read aloud from my copy, this is the Word from God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Some of you may read this along with me and say, what a strange text for a Sunday morning. When we think about how Exodus begins, if we were to go back and you were to spend your time, and I hope that many of you will be finding your way in Exodus in the coming days as you're reading through the Bible in a systematic way throughout the year. Those Bible reading plans are back there. But I hope that you get to the book of Exodus. And as you come to the book of Exodus, you know that follows the book of Genesis. And Genesis really follows how Abraham and his descendants, how they started there in the land that God had called Abram from and got them all the way to Egypt. It's a history lesson if you will. And then Exodus opens up and the main theme of Exodus is how God brings his people, his chosen people, sets them apart and brings them out of Egypt. And so as you might expect, Exodus 1, chapter 1, or verse 1 starts off with explaining the context. It explains the setting of what is going on. But if you are very familiar with your Bible at all, you will know that this is just the beginning of a very great, rich, supernatural, glorifying story to the power of God. And Exodus 1 gives us a bit of history. I think it's appropriate in our days today because if you look back to the history of Wellston, there's a lot there. Wellston Houston didn't always be the, bus, the uh, bustling metropolis it is today. Once upon a time, the town of Fallis, Fallis, north of Wellston here, was bigger than Wellston. It was the railroad that really gave Wellston the leg up. And if you were to go down to the insurance office here on Main Street, you can see pictures in there of what Main Street Wellston looked like days ago. Hayes Store 
other businesses along the streets of Wellston. And someone may come through Wellston now and they say, well, it is just a ghost town. There is nothing left. But here is what I have told some of you and what I want to just kind of let the cat out of the bag to all of us. is something I'm very excited about. Conservatively, there are numerous estimates with the growth of population and the growth of communities Over the next five to ten years, Wellston is going to see a rebirth numerically. As the communities continue to expand and as people continue to grow, there will be an increase. Some have said threefold, some have said fivefold, some have even said more than that of population moving out to this area. In fact, I would just assume, looking out amongst you, that there is the majority in this room that did not was not born in Wellston. And so as I look to the future of Wellston, I am tremendously excited about the opportunities that we have before us today. Maybe put it another way. We have an opportunity today to write the history for tomorrow. So as you come to Exodus chapter 1, you are reading and you are seeing these, this family, the family of Jacob, and they wrote the history that we are reading today. In other words, if you think about it in a spiritual sense, they were building a legacy. And this morning, I want to spend a few moments of your time looking at these first seven verses, looking about how they formed a legacy. And you see there in your notes, there's four different factors that I want you to see with me from these verses that help us understand how it is that we build a legacy. Because there is a difference between having intentions and, there's a, and building a legacy. A legacy is a result of what you do and how God uses you in your life. You can have all the best intentions in the world, but that does not build a legacy that other people can follow. So I want you to look back with me. We're going to look at these seven verses, focus in again, and I want to show you, I want you to see with me these factors that, I, that, I have, that I've seen this week studying this that have formed this legacy that I think have application to where we're at today. The first factor I want you to see with me is their identity. If you look back up in verse 1, look back down at the text in verse 1. It says, now these are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. The the first thing that the writer here, Moses, in Exodus 1 and verse 1 gives us is the identity of the people. He reminds us that they were of the household of Jacob. Now you may say, well, why is that significant, Spence? Why does that matter? Well, names were a big thing. And God used people in a very mighty way. And if you think back to your history there in Genesis, not only were they of the household of Jacob, but ultimately they were descendants of Abraham. Now why does that matter? Well, because it's back in Genesis chapter 12 where God comes to Abram and says, Abram, I'm going to set you apart and you are going to be a special people. You are going to be my people. And then as Abram begins to follow after God, God says, Abram, I will give you an offspring. And he brings the offspring Isaac into his life. And from Isaac comes Jacob and Esau. And from Jacob comes these 12 Boys, these 12 brothers, these 12 tribes, if you will, that are listed here in verse 1. And all of it is aligning themselves back to the lineage that God had established, back to God's chosen people. Their identity would then determine what they would do in the future. And there are spiritual principles that we can find. My identity should mark how I live. And because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and because I'm a professing 
born-again Christian. That should mark how I live. That should should mark what I do. And identity is huge, and, and their identity is help what forms and what crafts who they are. Not only the household of Jacob, but they were descendants of Abraham. And so the, the, Moses makes it very clear that this is who these people are. So everything that you know following of what they did or how they did it or why they did it, everything is based upon who they are in God. And there are things that should mark you and I today because of who we are in Christ. John 1 and verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are a child of God. That is your identity. I know some of you young people today, the the identity is a big thing in school. And how do you want to identify yourself? And and, and a lot of the, the peer pressure and the social pressure says you can identify however you want to identify. May I tell you they are wrong. You may not identify however you want to identify because God has already given you an identity. God has already placed upon your life an identity because he created you. Because he created you in his image and he has created the male and female in the image of God. He created them. It's this idea that God has an identity for you. And even us adults, we start to compromise our identity with our vocation. Our identity with our last name. Our identity with our hobbies, our identity with something else, and we forget that our identity first comes from who we are in Christ. John 1, 12 mentions that. Romans 8 and verse 7 reminds us that we are fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs is just a word saying that we have the same inheritance. We have the same privileges. We have the same standing in the eyes of God with Christ because we are born again believers in Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you're saved, you know that I, have, I now have an identity. My identity is no longer a lost sinner headed to hell. My identity is in Christ. And in verse 1, the writer makes it very clear, this is who these people are. May the history books record the history of this community. Not because of your vocation. And not because of your last name. But because of who you are in Christ. And so right here they say you're part of a legacy. Part of this forming of a legacy. Because this, this, this family name, this family of Israel. Israel was the name that God gave him in Genesis 35 as he blessed Jacob. And he renamed him to signify what he was going to do with Jacob. But when he said this is the identity. And then this identity carries all throughout the pages of the scripture. And is even relevant today. Every Jewish person, the whole nation of Israel, traces their lineage all the way back to one man, Abram. His son, Isaac. Abram's two grandsons, Esau and Jacob. And from Jacob, the twelve tribes. And from the twelve tribes come the entire population of the Jewish people. The legacy. The lineage. The identity. But there's another factor. And that is the place. So so notice the writer here in Exodus reminds us of their identity. That was was forming a legacy, but also their place. He says the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Now, Egypt is a very unlikely place. Why do you say that, Spence? Well, because when God came in Genesis 12 and said, Abram, I'm going to call you from this place, and I'm going to send you to another place, and I'm going to give you that place in inheritance, it wasn't Egypt. 
It wasn't that he took them and Egypt was the promised land. It wasn't the Garden of Eden. In fact, Exodus is going to show you later on as you continue reading, Exodus was not a good place for the people of Israel. Exodus is not a good place for Jacob. Exodus is not a place that everybody got there and said, man, it's like we're in Mexico on the Bahamas and we're in Cancun or we're on the vacation beachfront every single day. No, Egypt was not a great place. But what we do know based upon the word of God is that God had placed them in Egypt. Where do you get that from, Spence? Well, you go back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 3. And what is, notice what God says. Let me get there and I'll read it to you. Notice what God says. Genesis 15 and verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God tells Abram at the very onset, Yes, I'm going to create a great nation from you. Yes, I'm giving you this, this promised land. But you need to know that between now and then there will come a time of 400 years of bondage, of 400 years of suffering. Now we can get... We can go to seed on that, and we can start asking, well, why'd God do that, and how could dare God do that, and, da, da, da. and we can miss the idea that your address does not control your faithfulness. The majority of us today know about Egypt not because of their economic prosperity, not because of their spiritual vitality. The majority of us in this room know about Egypt because of the Bible stories about how God used Egypt to demonstrate his power. How God used Egypt to demonstrate his sovereignty. How God used Egypt to show that these are my chosen people. God had an idea and God was not looking at it in the term of decades or looking at it in the term of tens uh, and twenties and thirties years. No, God was looking at it in the big picture and God already had a plan. God was going to put them in a place for a purpose and for the point of his glory. God tells Je Abram in Genesis chapter 15, they're going to go to this land. He tells Jacob, in Genesis 46, go into Egypt. I have a plan for you in Egypt. You get all the way to Genesis 50, right before Exodus 1. And even Joseph acknowledges the reason God has brought you here is to save this people. God was preserving his chosen people. Now, I think there's a spiritual principle there for you and I. Because sometimes we let our place, our surroundings, dictate our behavior. We get in a spot and we say, well, this is difficult, this is easy, this is fun, this is hard, I don't like this, I do like this. And we start letting our surroundings and we start letting our circumstances dictate our faithfulness for God. Yes, God brought the Jewish people into Egypt and yet he placed them there. But yet they were not giving a pass to say, you don't need to fear God, you don't need to follow God, and you don't need to obey God. No, there was still the expectation that it didn't matter what the circumstances were around them, they needed to be faithful to God. And church, I want you to hear from me and I want you to hear from the word of God this morning that it's not a matter of the place that is going to be the point of faithfulness. The question is, is your perspective. The story is told of a shoe salesman. Starts in a new company, brand new guy in the shoe selling business. And one of the first, uh, first, first uh, jobs that the company put him on, they, took him to, they, they sent him to a foreign country and they said, here, go and shell, sell shoes to this foreign country. Story goes, the shoe salesman gets in the plane, he gets over there and he lands and he looks around and he says, and he looks around and nobody has shoes on. And he, and he calls back and contacts the home office and says, you need to reassign me someplace else. No one here wears shoes. So they transferred him out. 
sent a more seasoned salesman. The more seasoned salesman got on the ground, looked around. Nobody had shoes on. He immediately picked up the phone, called the home office, and said, Send me all the shoes you have. No one here has shoes. It's a matter of perspective. And we can look around this community and we can see all of the challenges and we can see all the obstacles and we can see all of the things that are against us or we can look around this community and see all the people created by God that are lost and need the love of Jesus. It's a matter of understanding that God has put us in a place for a purpose. God has put us in a place not for us to look around and make all the excuses for us to understand that God had us here. So while we are here, let's be faithful. So he tells them, this is your identity. This is your place. But then, then I want you to see in verse 6, their contribution. Their contribution. So you get to verse 2, and he goes through the list. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. But verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all of that generation. You may say, well, Spence, it doesn't say anything about their contribution. It doesn't say anything about their medical advances. It doesn't say anything about how they built uh, children's homes or how they were, were charitable to the poor or their generosity. It doesn't say anything about their buildings. It doesn't say anything about their ministries. It doesn't say anything about their projects. What does it say? It says they lived and they died. <laughs> then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. What happened? They died. Well, that's not very legacy-building Spence. No, they lived and they died. So what was their contribution? Verse 7, they increased greatly, they multiplied. It wasn't just a matter of they lived and they did something supernatural or super extraordinary by man's perspective. What did they do? They went and they lived in Egypt and they were faithful to God and they did what God had called them to do. And they just simply said, this is my contribution. Let God use it as he will. They lived and they died. But as the writer of Exodus is pointing out to us, their life was more than just a life. It wasn't just a life in meaningless. It wasn't just a life wasted away. It was a life in service and to be used by God. And sometimes we forget that our contribution in the kingdom work that God has given us to do may not be realized for years down the road. We live in a generation that I want the recognition, I want the awareness. If I do something, I want to know and I want the ego to say, look at me, look how cool I am. And we may never know what God may do with our contribution a decade 50 years or 100 years from now. Does anybody in the room know the name Edward Kimball? I hope not. It ruined the illustration. Edward Kimball was a pastor of years ago. And through the ministry of Edward Kimball, a man by the name of D.L. Moody got saved and come to the Lord. D.L. Moody began to preach, and he began to minister, and he began to pastor. And under the ministry of D.L. Moody, a man by the name of Wilbur Chapman was saved. Wilbur Chapman, then God raised up and put him into the ministry. Wilbur Chapman began a preacher and a teacher. And it was through the preaching and the teaching of Wilbur Chapman that a man by the name of Billy Sunday, a reformed baseball player, gets saved and comes to the Lord. 
Now, Billy Sunday was a firecracker, and Billy Sunday was an exciting person to listen to. And Billy Sunday got called into the ministry. Billy Sunday began to preach and began to teach and uh, doing revival meetings and, and, and evangelistic work. And it was through the preaching of Billy Sunday that a man by the name of Mordecai Ham was saved. God calls Mordecai Ham into the service, ministry of the church. Mordecai Ham begins to preach and to teach. And one particular evening, on an evening service, a young man walks the aisle, gives his heart to Jesus under the preaching of the ministry of Mordecai Ham, whose name was Billy Graham. And it is reported that Billy Graham has preached two more people and has seen more people come to the Lord under his preaching than anyone in the history of the world. Why? Because Edward Kimball was faithful. He lived and he died. Amen. Why? Because D.L. Moody was faithful. He lived and he died. Wilbur Chapman lived and he died. Billy Sunday lived and he died. Mordecai Ham lived and he died. All of these men had their contribution so that one man might have a great impact for the kingdom of God. My point is, church, is you and I do not have any idea how God may use our lives for his glory and for his service in the years to come. But we do know that if we do not present ourselves to God to be used by God, God will find somebody else and we will miss out on the opportunity to have been used by God for a great legacy that he might do there's the contribution. Now they're not, we're not talking about these guys because how fancy they were, how rich they were, how educated they were, how many homes they had or how many camels they had. We're not talking because of what they accomplished in this life. Is the fact that they just said, you know what, I'm going to live a life committed to God and let God do with it what he will. Amen. And there's sometimes in this world and there's sometimes us in this room, we get so focused on what immediate gratification I get that we miss the opportunity just to be faithful to God. So we talk about their identity. We talk about their place. We talk about their contribution. The fourth factor I want you to see with me is their impact. Their impact. It says in verse 7, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so the land was filled with them. The impact they had. It wasn't that they took over the government. It wasn't that they created some famous canal or aqueduct. It wasn't the scientific advancements they did. It was the fact they just simply did what God told them to do. They increased. They were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. I want you to think about, in a spiritual sense, the application that can have from just this one verse. Notice it says there in verse 7 in the text before us, it says the people of Israel were fruitful. Now, in a New Testament sense, there is still the expectation for God's people to be fruitful today. Some of you may think back to, or think ahead to John 15. In John chapter 15, and starting in verse 4, listen to what Jesus says. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much 
You mean Jesus expects for followers of him to be fruitful today? Yes. But you notice what Jesus doesn't say is that we have to create. No, we bear fruit. There's a difference in us creating fruit and bearing fruit. See, when we bear fruit, we're letting Jesus, we're letting the Holy Spirit, we're letting Christ produce the fruit in us. And that as the bearers of the fruit, people just see the fruit of the Holy Spirit inside of us or outside of us. But we're still called to be fruitful. Where else? Well, he talks about the idea that they are fruitful. We are expected to be fruitful today. But not only that, it tells you in Exodus chapter 1 and verse, verse 7 that they were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Okay, so we understand that we're to be fruitful, yes. And we're also called to be strong, yes. How do we grow in our spiritual strength? Well, Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul puts it like this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he goes on to explain how you do this by putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And he goes on to talk about the spiritual armor of the Lord. It's the impact they had. They did what God told them to do. God said, go to the land of Egypt, be fruitful, and multiply. What'd they do? They went, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied. So now we fast forward to 2023, and we say, okay, church, what are we called to do? We are called to be fruitful and to multiply. Well, you mean genetically? You mean biologically? You mean we're supposed to have, start having a lot of babies? Well, that's fine if you want to do that. That's great. But beyond that, we are called to multiply spiritually. Multiply spiritually. Well, how do you do that? You understand that you have a mandate from the Holy Spirit and from the Word of God to say, I'm going to go around and I'm going to live such a life that people see Jesus in me and I can lead other people to Jesus. There's a, spiritual dynamic, there's a spiritual multiplication in place that is expected of the people of God. You go to the book of Acts. I realize that none of us in this room are Paul. One of the things that was true about Paul and was true about Philip and was true about Peter and was true about all the rest of the disciples that we have in recorded history both inside of Scripture and outside and other Jewish historical writings is everywhere the disciples went, people came to Christ. Why? Because they understood that was what their job as a believer was. To multiply themselves spiritually for the sake of the kingdom of God. That was their opportunity to make an impact. You want to make an impact? Go and tell somebody about Jesus. Go and multiply yourself spiritually so that people, there are more people that are in the kingdom of God tomorrow than there are today. And another way you do that is you grow strong in your faith in the Lord. That way when the Satan comes along and he blows at you with sickness, he blows at you with strife in your family, he blows at you with tragedy at work, he blows at you with circumstances globally, he blows at you with discouragement and frustration and he puts all these things upon you because you are so strong you can weather it I'm not saying you got to enjoy it and I'm not saying you deserve it you actually deserve a lot worse but I'm not saying that you deserve that situation but there's such a thing as being able to weather the storm And we have an opportunity to make an impact today. 
And we have an opportunity to make an impact in this community. And it's not necessarily by building buildings, and it's not necessarily by creating more policies or procedures or having new methods. It's not a matter of being more popular. It's a matter of doing what God has called us to do. And what God has called us to do is to multiply and to be fruitful. That is how we build a legacy. Let that be the legacy of this church. So how do we commit? At the bottom of your notes, how do we commit to this legacy? Well, three ways, and then I'm going to tell you a story and we'll be done. The first way that I'd encourage you when we think about how do we commit to a legacy, the first step is to center your identity in Christ. To center your identity in Christ. Your identity is not in your last name. Your identity is not in your personality. Your identity is not in the person next to you. Your identity is not in the job that you have tomorrow. Your identity is not in your retirement or in your money or anything else. Your identity is not in the piece of paper in the frame on the wall. Your identity is in Christ. And because your identity is in Christ, then that then has an influence in how you live your life. And it doesn't matter whether you're four or you're 40 or you're older. It doesn't matter. If your identity is in Christ, that changes who you are. That changes how you act. That changes how you believe. That changes how you maneuver in your life. And so you center your identity in Christ. Secondly, you live a life focused on eternity. So many times we, as in our humanity, we measure influence. We measure importance in years, 10 years, 20 years. And God is seeing it from the concept of eternity. And you may say, well, you know, I've been doing this thing, Spence, for 10 years, and I'm not seeing a difference. Keep doing it if that is what God has called you to do, because you have no idea what God may do with it in 100 years. You have no idea. You have no clue. Live a life focused on eternity. I want to spend the next 10,000 bajillion years not having regretted giving up too soon on what God told me. You know, one of the things that I find interesting, and and maybe it's just my ignorance when it comes to the biblical things, but as you read on in Exodus, of course, they're in the land of Goshen. It's a really fruitful land. It's a land that makes a lot of opportunities agriculturally. It's a land that they have a, a, the the environment is, is ripe for numeric multiplication. However, I've always asked the question, when you get on in the book of Exodus, and then Egypt, or the Pharaoh comes in and says, hey, we are going to make them slaves. We're going to impose our will upon them, and now we're going to place taskmaster of them, and now they're going to be slaves to us. I always thought in my head, why didn't the Israelite people, why didn't they just say, you know what, no thanks, see ya. I know how to get here, and I know how to leave here. Why, why, Why in the world did they not do that? I don't have an answer for you. There's not a verse that tells us why they didn't do that. But I wonder so many times if it's because they stayed because that's where God told them to stay. And God said, I want to put you here, and when I'm ready for you not to be there, I'll come and get you. They lived a life focused on eternity. The third way to commit a life to legacy is to multiply yourself and impact the community. To multiply yourself and impact the community. Now, I realize that some of you may look at that phrase there in the notes and say, well, Spence, how do I do that? How do I do that in Wellston, Oklahoma? 
Let me make a suggestion. September of 1991, the estate of Harold and Thelma Elsie made a large monetary gift to the church. This church, FBC Wellston. It was then decided that they would ask a group of individuals, Bill Cotton, Rex Franklin, Alan Lee, Roger Stevens, John Troop, Eldon Whitna, and the pastor Tell Romberg to lead the effort in constructing the Elsie Christian Educational Building. July of 1992, they broke ground in the very same building that's still standing. Some of you, even this morning as you gathered for Sunday school, gathered for Sunday school in the Elsie building. Why? Because it was a family that came before you that made a financial sacrifice and then there were people in the church that were willing to give up their time and their talents and their service to see a building come to fruition because they knew they needed space for people to be taught the word of God. Amen. It's an opportunity to make an impact. Story goes on. 1995. This very same church voted to purchase land just north of where the church stood existing. And in March of 2000, this church began a campaign called Focus. Back on the door as you come in, above is the plaque commemorating the Focus campaign. Following our commitment. Following our commitment unto sacrifice. The idea was that they understood they needed more space. And they needed more space to be able to minister to the community. So a campaign, a finance building campaign was started in March of 2000 called Focus. And they asked people to sacrificially give so that they might expand the ministry of the church. And in October of 2001, the work and the construction began on the very building you were setting in right now. Men like Dick Simpson, Roger Cornelson, Roger Stevens, Alan Lee, and Terry Humphrey were some of the names that led the efforts of building this building that we worship in today. One of the individuals that uh, I was asking about that season of life there in October of 2001 said it was such an amazing time for us because we saw the work of God and we saw the answer of God in prayer. Now, I doubt that very many of us in this room right now would know a name or a face of a person that voted to buy this property. And I doubt even fewer of us in this room would know of the names and the individuals that financially gave and how much they gave for the building of this facility. But you don't have to know the name and you don't have to know the dollar amount to benefit from their impact. And church family, you have no idea how your service to God may impact the generations to come. So I go back here to Exodus chapter 1. I'm almost through. I go back to Exodus chapter 1. And I look at these seven verses. And I sat down in my study just this last week. And I wrote it in the vernacular of Spence. 
These are the names of the men who came to FBC Wellston with their households. Ben Gillentine, Chad Payton, Jonathan Stapp, Corey Hill, Dustin Murray, David Brockman, Jacob Todd, Jimmy Weathers, Brock Terrell, Adam Carter, Caleb Maloney, Jim Shaw, and Josh Fine. And at FBC Wellston were already Steve Wilson, Ron Whitna, Greg Ole, Van Swafford, Wayne Webb, Mark Williams, Alan Lee, Terry Humphrey, Evan Green, and Brandon Troop. And God used the people of FBC Wellston to be fruitful and increase greatly. And the people of FBC Wellston grew in their faith and led people to Christ. And the community of Wellston was filled with followers of Jesus Christ because of them. That is the message in Exodus chapter 1. God is saying, these are the people that I was able to use to impact generations for the glory of God. Now this morning, I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, this is a good idea. This morning, I'm not saying, well, you know what, maybe we ought to think about this. This morning, I am calling you. It doesn't matter whether your name was read or not. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter whether you're over the age of 18 or you're under the age of 18. Every single one of us this morning has an opportunity to say, I'm going to commit my life to be used by God and let God write the history of my legacy. Every single one of us have this opportunity this morning. And who knows what God may do with these people at Wellston. When we commit to live a life devoted to God. You bow your heads with me.